0: This is TanakhCast. Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 61. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 17 through 21 in the Book of Judges and follow with a consideration of odd digressions and unruly behavior. The two concluding stories in the Book of Judges are real humdingers. The first focuses on an Ephraimite named Micha, who, it seems, took 1,100 shekels of silver from his mother, but then gives it back to her. Soon after, she gives it back to him, and he gives it right back to her. When all the giving and taking is done, a silver ephod and trophim, two types of divinatory devices, are erected at his house. And it seems he's about to set up shop as a local shrine for God, because, as verse 6 tells us, "...in those days there was no king in Israel." Every man did what was right in his eyes. And in verse 7, Michal hires himself a freelance itinerant Levite to be, quote, a father and a priest for me in the belief that, quote, the Lord will deal well with me for the Levite has become my priest. Oh. Chapter 18 reminds us again that there was no king in Israel, so people were pretty much doing what they wanted. And the Danites, who had a coastal inheritance, have to move because of the local Canaanites and Philistines. So they send an advance team who happened to pass by Micha's house, and they recognize the Levite from his earlier itinerant days and ask him for some divinely inspired advice. He tells them that God will help them. And in fact, they find a city in the north, Laish, which is safe and best of all, unguarded. And so, the advance team return to their families and gather 600 warriors. On the way to seize Laish, they pass near Micha's house again, and the advance team drop in to thank the Levite, and while they're there, they decide to steal Micha's silver ephod and trafim and convince the Levite to come and be their priest instead. Oh, yeah. Micha really has nothing to say about this because there are 600 armed men at his door and he gives token chase, but ultimately returns to his home, priestless and aphodless. The second story is of a concubine who leaves her Levite husband. No, it's not the same Levite, but it it does seem that Levites are getting some bad press here. Anywho, she returns to her father's house to seek shelter from her terrible husband, who soon shows up at his father-in-law's door to, quote, speak to her heart and bring her back. So after four days of heart-speaking, She relents and agrees to go back with her man. The husband and his concubine head out as the night falls, and they look for lodging in Givah in the land of Benjamin. They can't find an inn, so they decide to hunker down in the town square until morning when an old man passes by and invites them to come to his house. This is a lovely gesture, and the old man is a gracious host, but soon there is a pounding on the door. The men of Givah want to know the Levite. The old man addresses the mob and offers his own daughter and the concubine for them to rape, just so there's no confusion about the mob's intention, but they are fixated on the Levite. The Levite, to save himself, pushes his concubine out the door and into the hands of the mob, who proceed to rape the concubine all night long. They leave her at at daybreak, and she manages to drag herself to the entrance of the old man's house, where her husband picks her up and takes her home. And I guess by the time they return to the land of Ephraim, she dies, because when they return home, the husband takes a knife and chops the concubine into 12 pieces and dispatches a piece to every tribe in Israel. Well, you can imagine the reaction to this atrocity, the rape, not the dismemberment. And chapter 20 describes how the other 11 tribes mobilize and march on Givah to exact punishment on the rapist mob. They demand that the Benjaminites serve up the guilty men, but Benjamin refuses. So do you know what this means? This means war! Which God seems okay with. And yet surprisingly, in the first skirmish, the Benjaminites kick ass, which is a source of concern for the leaders of the other 11 tribes. They consult with God, who encourages a rematch. But when the Israelites are handed a second defeat at the hands of Benjamin, then folks really start to worry. I guess the third time is the charm, because when the third day is through, Benjamin is routed. Barely 600 Benjaminites flee to the rock at Rimon while Givah burns. And Israel, quote, struck them by the edge of the sword. From the town, from man to beast, whatever was there, all the towns, too, that were there were set on fire. And to add insult to major injury, the men of Israel meet in Mitzpeh and pledge to boycott the surviving Benjaminites when it comes to marriage. But then they realize that in so doing, one whole tribe will eventually disappear, which is not good. So while the men of Israel are pondering this matter, someone pipes up and asks, Hey, did everybody come out and fight against Benjamin? And when they realize that the folks from Yavesh Gilad did not come, they decide to put them to Chereb, smiting every male and non-virgin female for standing idly by while a major score was settled. And when the killing is through, and only about 400 virgin women remain, they put 400 and 600 together and realize that they have just solved two-thirds of their Benjamin bachelor problem. But what to do with the remaining 200 unmarried Benjaminite men? some other anonymous man in Israel says, hey, don't we have that festival at Shiloh where unmarried women run around husbandless? So they tell the remaining 200 to come to Shiloh and go out and get themselves a woman. And if any of those women's brothers or fathers have a problem with their sister or daughter being kidnapped, well, we'll tell them, oh yeah. And why did all this happen? Because, quote, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. So what the hell is going on in this episode? For two moments, we plummet from the moral universe of the Tanakh into Westeros for an unhealthy dose of Game of Thrones mayhem. Unless perhaps dawns the realization that in the book of Judges, there was always a little peanut butter in this chocolate from the get-go, an undercurrent of violence, be it implied threats or actual violence, that periodically explodes from under the surface to annihilate everyone in its path. The story of Micha is a wacky outlier, and not in the Gladwellian sense. There is this whole weird back-and-forth with 1,100 shekels of silver between Micha and his mother, and throughout all of this, not one judge is involved. Micha does not become a judge in a moment of crisis, nor are the people actively oppressed at any point in this story. And there is only one implied threat of violence to drive the action forward to its odd conclusion. But the story of the concubine in Giva is notorious for its depravity and misogyny and it lays it out there for all to see. There's no ambiguity. All the euphemisms are consciously stripped away. When the mob of men call out the Levites so they may know him, and women are offered up in his stead, the old man calls it rape, which deters no one from their planned course of action. Then, when war against Benjamin threatens to annihilate the tribe, the men of Israel think it's a good idea to traffic the virgins of Evesh and Shiloh to the men who were their sworn enemies 10 minutes before. This, as I said, is not a shining moment in the moral universe of the Tanakh. It is a vision of the world best encapsulated by the concept of summum malum, or the greatest evil, an idea explicated by Thomas Hobbes in his work Leviathan. He writes about a world in which individuals are primarily moved not by the greatest good, or summum bonum, but by the fear of being killed, Individuals must always be on guard and suspicious of everyone who might strike out at them to take their stuff for whatever reason. Sounds like Giv'ah to me. In this world, quote, There is no place for industry, because the fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently not culture of the earth, no navigation, nor the use of commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving and removing such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short." Which is why the text so often repeats the phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. As if a king in Israel would never have tolerated any of this brutality. As if a king would have enforced the commandments whose source was equated by philosophers like Philo of Alexandria with the idea of the good. So when Judges concludes with this statement, stating outright that a Hobbesian state of nature exists where everyone is against everyone, We are primed to look ahead to the next book, to the book's namesake Samuel, who is the harbinger of an era of lawfulness and order, all the while knowing that even when there will be a king in Israel, some men will continue to do what is right in their own eyes. If you like what you heard today, tell a friend. Send them an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or you could do the social media thing and like TanakhCast at the show page on Facebook or Google+. Or you could leave a kind word in the comments section at thenextjew.com or write a brief review at the iTunes store. Or find TanakhCast at Stitcher Smart Radio or SoundCloud and leave a kind word there. It's a small thing, really, but it'll help me and help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that. And encourage you to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 62 when we begin the book of Samuel with chapters 1 through 3.